right, it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy 620, or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com or Google Play, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. Today, we got a lot to talk about. We're going to start with uh, a piece over at Axios that talks about uh, the decrease in abortions since Roe was overturned. Obviously, we uh, we anticipated that being the case, but you know now we have some real numbers to to back that up. So abortions have decreased since Roe was overturned, and and it it kind of goes in line with what we thought. The states that have restrictions, obviously there would be less abortions. The states that don't have restrictions, there'd be more abortions. But it all shakes out to less abortions overall. So we'll look at that. We're also going to look at what's happening in Canada and euthanasia. They have just, we talked about this uh, in the past, but they have just gone off the rails when it comes to doctor-assisted suicide and, and what they're doing and what they're looking to do moving forward. Uh, and then we're going to finish up by looking at uh, some numbers when it comes to marriage. And why we are seeing marriage numbers de- decline compared to years past. And some of that is due to those that are married. And I'm going to talk about that uh, here in just a little while. But let's start with the Axios piece. Uh, they reported that abortions fell by about 6% across the country over the summer after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade according to data from the Society of Family Planning. The nationwide drop was driven by, guess what, states like Tennessee, my home state, where restrictive abortion bans were implemented soon after the ruling. States in which abortion remains legal are seeing big increases. Uh, This is what Axios' Caitlin Owens reports. That trend suggests plenty of patients traveled out of state to obtain access. Tennessee's sweeping abortion ban, which is among the most restrictive in the country, kicked in on August 25th after a waiting period. But a six-week abortion ban that took effect on June 28th within days of the Supreme Court ruling led to an immediate drop. Listen to these numbers. About 1,030 abortions took place in Tennessee in June. 1,030 abortions took place in Tennessee in June, per the Society of Family Planning. That figure fell to 280 in July and 260 in August. So when people are like, oh, well, legislation doesn't change anything, abortions don't actually decline, now we have the numbers. We have the data. It works. It works. And, And I'm proud that our state has done this. In states with few restrictions on abortion, there was an 11% increase in the total number from April to August. Now, this doesn't surprise us because obviously states that allow for abortion are going to see an increase in abortion with people traveling to those states. That's why when people are like, oh, Roe's overturned, abortion is over, that's not the case. It sends it back to the states, and then you have it play out just like it's playing out. Tennessee, very restrictive, less abortions. New York, not restrictive, more abortions. That's how it's going to work. Neighboring North Carolina saw a 37% increase in abortion, the largest of any state. Illinois, where the abortion clinic closest to Nashville are located, saw a 28% jump. Tennessee's trigger ban makes performing an abortion a felony and contains no true exceptions. Instead, the law lays out a path for doctors to defend themselves in court by arguing an abortion was necessary because the pregnant person's life was in jeopardy. Listen, can I just stop for a second? 
Axios and, and other media outlets and scientific journals are now refusing to say pregnant women. Now, now some will say, well, that's just semantics, it's just words. But here's the thing. We are slowly being conditioned to change our vocabulary. And, and, and this is, now, now you're going to, some people may say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. No, listen to what I'm saying. And, and here's how I know that. Just, you know, two years ago, year and a half ago, when we talked about a baby in the womb, we talked about a heartbeat. We talked about heartbeat bills being passed, not just conservatives, but, but liberals as well. They, when they would talk about the issue, they would say heartbeat bill. They're, they're trying to pass a heartbeat bill. And then just quietly, with no fanfare, media outlets and, and journals and the, and the like started saying things like, oh, well, it's electric pulses. It's not really a heartbeat. It's not really a heartbeat until down the road. And then you have Stacey Abrams saying we're manufacturing sounds via ultrasound. It's not really a heartbeat. We're just quietly changing language until it becomes the norm. So now we, we change language and we say things like, well, it's not a heartbeat. It's, it's electric pulses. It's cardiac activity, but it's not a heartbeat. This is the same thing. So pay attention. When you're reading articles, when you're reading journals, when you're reading these things, when they say things like pregnant people, they're, they're doing that on purpose. And, and they control the language. And so as we're reading this, this gets into our vernacular. Our vocabulary starts to change. Oh, well, we no longer say pregnant women. We say pregnant people. We no longer say policemen. We say police person. You see, these are things that we're getting to where the language will slowly shift. Now, why does that matter? It matters because then the, the, the narrative, the, the push of, of what we're seeing in our ideologies as of late with the transgender issue and, and the, those things, the language will easily just shift. So we have to be aware of that. So when they say, because the pregnant person's life was in jeopardy, they purposely say that instead of because the pregnant woman's life is in jeopardy. No man has ever had an abortion. Men are paid for abortions. They've driven women to the abortion clinic. But no man has ever had a baby. And no man has ever had an abortion. So language matters. The article continues. Some Republican lawmakers have said they are open to pursuing cleanup legislation next year that would add an exception to explicitly shield doctors in those cases from prosecution. Now, I'm in talks with advocates and, and right to life and, and these organizations and politicians, and we're going we're gonna to try our best to hold these politicians accountable. And <clears throat> we don't want to see the legislation in Tennessee change at all. The, the legislation that currently is in place, listen to this, is decreasing abortions in the state of Tennessee, period. We had 1,030 abortions in June, 280 in July, 260 in August. The legislation is working. If you are truly pro-life, and I need these politicians to hear this. If you are truly pro-life, this is what you've campaigned on for, for decades. This is what you've raised money on. All the mailers that I receive in my mailbox from you saying, I'm pro-life, I'm conservative first, I'm blah, blah, blah. 
If you are truly those things, you will not change this law at all. Period. And it goes further. The head of the University of Tennessee Health Science Center told the Tennessean the current law could potentially impact our ability to recruit either trainees or potentially even doctors to the state. He is working with state medical groups to encourage tweaking the law to protect doctors. But abortion rights opponents are urging Tennessee lawmakers to resist any change. Of course, we're encouraging to resist any change. And, and I love that the, the head of the University of Tennessee Health Science Center said the current law could potentially. He, the, the, the head doesn't say, yeah, this current law is making it, you know, we're not having anybody. Nobody wants to become a doctor and, and come to Tennessee. No, it says it could do this, it could do that. So they want to change the legislation. It's not because they can't recruit doctors. There are pro-life doctors. There are doctors that don't desire to do abortions. They're wanting to change the law because they're, again, it's a incremental approach. Well, we'll get you to tweak this. And then next year, we'll get you to tweak this. And then next year, well, you know what? Why don't we move it to six weeks? And then the next year, you know... Why don't we move it to eight weeks and said, you know, we got to have some wiggle room in there. Look, that is that's the slow drip that will come if we do not hold strong and hold firm on our position. It's not about the ifs and the coulds and the possibles and the would be's and, and all that. No, it is. The reality is. The reality is the law that's on the books in the state of Tennessee is decreasing abortion. And, and folks, I thought that was the goal all along. I thought that was the point. But you know what's happened is some lawmakers in Tennessee voted for the trigger law because they never thought Roe would be overturned. And I'm not making that up. They have actually said that out loud to some people. And those people have told me. So, so you have folks that voted for a law that claimed to be conservative, that claimed to be pro-life, that said, I'm going to raise money on this. People are going to vote for me because of this. The pro-life community is going to come out and support. Right to Life is going to endorse me. Susan B is going to endorse me. All these things. But the reality is I was only voting for that because I didn't think, because I didn't think Roe v. Wade would ever be overturned. So they were pandering. Pandering. And now, they don't know what to do. And now, they're getting squishy. But, but here's, the, here's the reality. The bill, the law that's on the books in the state of Tennessee, is decreasing abortion. Period. And across the country, we've seen a decrease in abortions. Even though there are states that allow for abortion all the way up to nine months... We're still, we're still seeing a decrease overall. And that's a positive move. That's a positive trend. And we're going to continue to see that. Now, now the question is, are, are there politicians that are willing to do the hard thing? We, we talked about this uh, over and over and over and over. When is the right time to do the right thing? Well, right now. That's, that's it. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. That's when you do the right thing. And so, 
we have to, as, as pro-lifers in the state of Tennessee, go, well, the proof is in the pudding. We said that if we put this law in place, that abortions would decrease. Now the law is in place, and what happened? Abortions decreased. That's a win. That's positive. Now, we still have work to do. Until there's zero abortions, we still have work to do. But the, the trend line is going in the right direction. We're seeing a decrease. And, and as, you, as, as I said earlier, abortions fell by 6% across the country over the summer. So it's happening everywhere. Listen to this stat. There were 2,770 abortions in Texas in April. Okay? 2,770 abortions in Texas in April. Do you know how many abortions were in Texas in August? Ten. Ten. From 2,770 in one month to ten after Roe was overturned. Texas, one of the largest states in the Union, had 10 abortions in the month of August. That's it. That's still 10 too many. But that's much better than over 2,000, almost 3,000 abortions in the month of April. So again, these things matter. It's important that we look at the data it's important that we recognize that, that when, when people say, oh, well, you know, the, the law in Tennessee is going to force doctors to do this or do that. Have you seen any court cases? No, we're just living in what if land. Oh, well, you know, this could make it hard on us to recruit people to Tennessee. It could make it hard. And so we, we need to change this law. There's no data showing that it's making it difficult, but it could, it could, you know, it could make it difficult. So we need to change the law. The only reason they want to change the law is because they want more abortions, period. Abortion is the narrative. And what, what I'm going to show here in a second, when we look at what's happening in Canada with euthanasia, death should not be a treatment for sickness. Death should not be a treatment for pregnancy. But we have some folks saying that that's the direction we need to go. We'll look at that when we come back. So as we continue the conversation, look, I know some of this is not... Uh, uh, that first segment is uplifting, right? We're, we're seeing less abortions. That's a positive trend. We hope we... We are moving in the right direction. I'll just be honest and transparent. During the break, I text a, a friend of mine that's a, a, a state rep, and I said, please tell me the caucus is going to stay strong on this and not change the law. Look, we, we got to, we have to, we must encourage our elected leaders to let them know to not wiggle on this. You know what? Because, because the folks that are wanting it changed, they're going to be reaching out to them. They're going to be reaching out. The, the, the lobbyist groups are reaching out. So we need, we need regular constituents, normal folks, to reach out and say, look, we don't need to change the law. It needs to stay in the way it is. The trigger ban is the, is the law we want in the state of Tennessee. It's working. 
So reach out. We reach out. And I just got a response. And here's the response. I'll fight against it if there is a push to weaken. And I know that fellow will. I know he will. And we may have him on here in a, a couple weeks to discuss further. But, but we must stay strong in this. We must reach out. They, they, they want to hear from you. They want to hear from you. So hopefully nothing will, will, will be done. No, no movement will be made to change or weaken the law. But we're going we're gonna to be on top of it and pay attention to it uh, as well. Right now I want to focus and, and turn to what's happening in Canada. Now you may say, well, what's that got to do with Tennessee? What's that got to do with the U.S.? But, but again, this is a trend that we're seeing. And when we see things like this, when we see death elevated as a remedy, as a treatment, we must call it out. And so there's a piece over at the New York Times that talks about it. It says, uh, Simmons is a prominent Canadian fashion retailer. In late October, it released a three-minute film, a moody, watery, mystical tribute. Its subject was the suicide of a 37-year-old British Columbia woman who was approved for what Canada law calls, or Canadian law calls, quote, medical assistance in dying, end quote, amid suffering associated with a syndrome that, uh, that's a group of disorders that affect the body's connective tissues. In an interview quoted in Canada's National Post, the chief merchant of Simmons stated that the film was, quote, obviously not a commercial campaign, end quote. Instead, it was a signifier of a public-spirited desire to build the communities that we want to live in tomorrow and to leave to our children. For those communities and children, the video's message is clear. They should believe in the holiness of euthanasia. In recent years, Canada has established some of the world's most permissive euthanasia laws, allowing adults to seek either physician-assisted suicide or direct euthanasia for many different forms of serious suffering, not just terminal disease. In 2021, over 10,000 people ended their lives this way, just over 3% of all deaths in Canada. A further expansion allowing euthanasia for mental health conditions will go into effect in March 2023. Permitting euthanasia for, quote, mature minors is also being considered. In the era of populism, there's a lively debate about when democracy ceases to be liberal. But the advance of euthanasia presents a different question. What if a society remains liberal but ceases to be civilized? The rules of civilization necessarily include gray areas. It is not barbaric for the law to acknowledge hard choices in end-of-life care about when to withdraw life support or how aggressively to manage agonizing pain. It is barbaric, however, to establish a bureaucratic system that offers death as a reliable treatment for suffering and enlist the healing profession in delivering this, quote, cure. And while there may be worse evils ahead, this isn't a slippery slope argument. When 10,000 people are availing themselves of your euthanasia system every year, you have already entered the dystopia. Indeed, according to a lengthy report by the Associated Press, the Canadian system shows exactly the corrosive features that critics of assisted suicide anticipated from healthcare workers allegedly suggesting euthanasia to their patients to sick people seeking, seeking death for reasons linked 
to financial stress. In these issues, you can see the dark ways euthanasia interacts with other late modern problems. The isolation imposed by family breakdown, the spread of chronic illness and depression, the pressure on aging low birth rate societies to cut their health care costs. But the evil isn't just in these interactions. It's, it's there in the foundation. The idea that human rights encompass a right to self-destruction, the conceit that people in a state of terrible suffering and vulnerability are really, quote, free to make a choice that ends all choices. The idea that a healing profession should include death in its battery of treatments. These are inherently destructive ideas. Left unchecked, they will forge a cruel, brave new world, a dehumanizing final chapter for the liberal story. Now, I'm going to pause for a second because... This is talking about euthanasia, but this is what I have said since I've been on air, since I've lived in Knoxville. If you devalue life at its beginning stage via abortion, and you devalue life at its end stage via doctor-assisted suicide and and what they're doing in Canada, then, then ultimately you have devalued life everywhere in between. You see, we are dehumanizing. This is uncivilized. Civilized societies don't kill their own. Whether it be via abortion or via a, quote, medical treatment to end your life because you have a mental health issue or you're in chronic pain. And now they're wanting to move that to mature minors? Minors can't get tattoos without parental consent. Many of them are not able to get their ears pierced without parental consent. But now we're, we're going to allow them to end their life. But in the Canadian experience, you can see what America might look like with real right-wing power broken and a tame conservatism offering minimal, minimal resistance to social liberalism. And the dystopian danger there seems not just more immediate than any right authoritarian scenario, but also harder to resist because its features are congruent with so many other trends. It's path smooth by so many powerful institutions. Yes, there are liberals, Canadian and American, who can see what's wrong with euthanasia. Yes, the most explicit cheerleading can still inspire backlash. Twitter reactions to the Simmons video have been harsh, and it's vanished from the company's website. But without a potent conservatism... The cultural balance tilts too much against these doubts. And the further de-Christianization proceeds, the stronger the impulse to go where the Simmons video already went, to rationalize the new order with implicit reassurances that it's what some higher powers wants. It often is treated as a defense of euthanasia that's the most intense objections come from biblical religion. But spiritual arguments never really disappear, and the liberal order in a dystopian twilight will still be infused by some kind of religious faith. So the author of this article says, So I remain a conservative unhappily but determinedly because only conservatism seems to offer a stubborn obstacle to that dystopia, and I would rather not discover the full nature of its faith. So, so as we think about what's happening in Canada, and the question is, Is that just the beginning? 10,000, 3% of all deaths in Canada, 3% of all deaths in Canada were euthanasia. 
Euthanasia. And we, we have, now we have on record hospital workers encouraging sick patients. Well, you just end it, man. You know, we do have that option. You could just end it now. I read an article the other day of a woman saying she called to, to, to talk to the hospital about her bills and about when she could get in again. And they, they said, you know, we do have euthanasia. You could just end it right now. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, again, if you devalue at the beginning via abortion, you devalue at the end via euthanasia and doctor assisted suicide, you devalue life everywhere. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we continue the conversation, we started with a look at the abortion numbers across the country. We've seen a 6% decline. We've seen a, a large decline in abortion in the state of Tennessee because of our laws on the books. Then we shifted to look at what's happening in Canada as that is connected to the devaluing of a life, the, uh, de, the, the dehumanizing of, of people, the, the desire to run away from faith and religion and Christianum and, and, and get us to a dystopian view of you know, what is life anyway, and if you don't feel good, or, or you have a chronic illness, or you, you have some mental health uh, difficulties, you can just end your life. If you have financial issues, the, the system, the bureaucratic system, the government, the savior in a secular world, which is the government, can, can make all things better by simply allowing you to take your life. We're, we're living in a time where, at least in Canada, when it comes to euthanasia, the medical community there is saying one of the remedies to your ailments is ending your life. And then when it comes to abortion, we're living in a time where, where medical providers would say one of, your, one of the remedies, one of the cures for your pregnancy is ending the life of the child growing inside of you. And so we're looking at what, what's happening in the, in the larger landscape of our, of our country and our world when it comes to dehumanizing folks. And, and, and now what I want to do is look toward the rates of marriage and, and births that are declining. And why is that happening? And, and it's an interesting perspective over at the New York Post because it's almost saying, hey, people that are married, maybe some of this you bear the weight of. And the article says this, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and the baby carriage, right? What if Americans stop playing that out? America is heading toward a birth rate crisis. A new Institute for Family Studies analysis of 2020 census data found one in six women reaching the end of their childbearing years hasn't given birth. This is a growing concern for the country. In 2007, the average number of children per woman was 2.7. By 2020, it was 1.6. Already, Senator Chuck Schumer is looking to fix our population plunge by granting citizenship to all that are here in the country illegally. The problem actually goes beyond birth rates. The focus on childbearing obscures a different calamity. Marriage rates are in collapse. Relationships in general are harder to come by. A 2020 Pew study found 35% of never married single men and 37% of never married single women 
had never even been in a committed relationship. That's a lot of people on their own. In August, the rather tame Psychology Today article about the rise of lonely single men went explicably viral. Writer Greg Matos, noting men are increasingly single, said the broad trends of their overrepresentation on dating apps and lack of dating skills, along with women's rising standards, don't pretend well for the future of men finding love. It's been written before, uh, and, and this author wrote, said, I, I looked at how deadly loneliness can be, especially for men. We talked about loneliness last week. Even when they do find love and have a family, so many simply don't make friends. And that loneliness is bad for their health. Take out the relationship piece and the problem gets far more severe. Matos' piece hit a nerve across the internet as women mocked the idea that their higher standards had left more men single. But women, of course, are just as single and will face the same problems as men. Part of the issue is that the splendor of family life is often a well-kept secret. We read articles about how wonderful it is to be single and see social media posts celebrating the fun of singlehood. Uh, Chelsea Handler often posts to her social media how fantastic it is to have the bed all to herself and how much she enjoys having no weekend obligations. But just like boys don't wear boys run in the world t-shirts and the richer a person is, the less likely she'll be wearing designer logos across her clothing, it would be uh, it would be for people in happy relationships to let the world know the truth. It would be important for people in happy relationships to let the world know the truth. It's impossible to imagine a comedian making regular videos about how thrilled he is to be married. In fact, when a couple is a little too open about their hashtag blessed relationship on social media, we immediately su- suspect things aren't actually going that well offline. The result is that people only see the bad side of marriage and family. Their married friends don't sit around over margaritas praising their spouses. If you talk about how amazing and fulfilling it is to have children. Instead, people highlight the struggles of marriage and family so as not to make anyone else feel bad about how incredible it actually is. We hear about only the negative aspects of family and only the absolute blissful part of singlehood. It's no wonder one has started to grow in popularity over the other. When people realize they've been lied to, it might be too late. So married people, do your friends a favor and don't hide your happiness. Tell the truth about the bad times, but don't pretend there aren't many more good ones. Rave about your spouse behind his or her back. Be honest about how fun it is to have children. Nothing is ever perfect. Whether you're single or married, it doesn't have to be. Let's just be real about how good it can be. And so when we think about the the numbers declining when it comes to marriage and births, some of that is on us, the married folks. Some of that is on us, the parents. Because what do we do? We say things, oh, you know, man, the good old days when I didn't have a spouse, the good old days when I didn't have kids and I could just, you know, go do whatever it is I wanted to do. We, we say things like that. Now, maybe that's tongue in cheek. Maybe we don't really mean those things. Maybe we certainly celebrate the fact that we have a spouse to come home to. We have kids to come home to. Look, I was, I was gone last week from Wednesday to Sunday. It was my wife and I and two of our kids. The other two kids stayed home with my mother-in-law. When I got home last night, or when I got home on Sunday night, and I came in the house, my two little girls, my two youngest, came running in the kitchen so excited to see me. 
jumped up in my arms, big smile on their face, big kiss. This morning when I was leaving the house, you know, we homeschool, so, so our house looks a little bit different. But this morning when I was leaving the house to go to work, Summer, my oldest daughter, was folding clothes in the kitchen. Gavin, my oldest child, was restocking our firewood. We needed firewood in the house. We needed firewood on the back patio. So he was bringing the wood up from out back to keep the house warm through the day. And I thought, man, these things are like, this is amazing. This is what I, this is what I love. Over the weekend, I, I, we had to deliver a piece of furniture to someone. And, and as you know, I drive a giant church van and we have a 16 foot enclosed trailer that, that I was pulling. And the person that we were delivering it to said, uh, yeah, there's plenty of room to turn around. Just come on up. Well, there, there wasn't plenty of room. Obviously, that person had never driven a, a church van and a 16-foot trailer. There was not plenty of room to turn around. This driveway was a good 100 feet. So I pulled all the way up to the house, and then I realized there's no place to turn around. So then I had to back all the way down that driveway. And my son is sitting in the vehicle with me. And the look on his face, and, and, and it was a proud moment for me, too. That, that I made it all the way back down the driveway and didn't hit anything or, or fall off the edge or anything like that. But the look on my 11-year-old boy's face as his dad backed down the driveway. You see, it's these small things. So are there tough times when, with being a parent? Absolutely. Are there tough times with, with having a spouse and uh, you know, being in a committed relationship and, and the accountability that goes with that and the frustration that goes with that is, you know, sometimes you talk to them the way you don't talk to anybody else. Sometimes we give grace to people that we work with more so than we give grace to our spouse. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we, we get frustrated. You know, there's a, there's a song by George Strait called, uh, I know she still loves me, but I don't think she likes me anymore. There's moments in a marriage where you're like, look, I, I get it. I know you love me right now, but I don't think you like me that much. But, but let me tell you that the positives far outweigh the negatives. And so we've been selling a bill of goods to our young people that marriage is, is hard. Put it off as long as you can. I got engaged when I was 21 years old. We were married a few months later, later when both of us were 22. And in my friend group, a lot of people were like, are you sure? Don't you want to put this off till you graduate college? Don't you want to put this off till you're financially uh, more stable? Don't you want to put this off? Don't, that was all the messaging. Don't you want to put this off? How do you know that's the right one? Don't you want to put this off? You see, we've been selling this bill of goods to young people, and they've listened. Well, yeah, I want to put it off. Or they grew up in homes where the marriage was a train wreck. And they said, the last thing I want is what mom and dad had, so I'm going to stay single as long as possible. And so sometimes we say things like, well, this is, this is on the singles. No, a lot of this is on us, the married couples, that, that make it out like marriage is the worst thing ever. Like we've been sentenced 
to marriage. That, that was our conviction, and we were sentenced to be married to a person, and man, it's terrible, go enjoy your single life, when the reality is very much different. You, you can have someone to grow old with. You can watch your children grow old, become men, become women. And in the simple things like leaving the house this morning and seeing my little girl folding clothes, happy to do it. Seeing my little boy bringing up wood, excited to tell me how many pieces he had in the wheelbarrow. I, Daddy, I had 22 pieces of wood in this wheelbarrow. Can you believe it? It matters, folks. Celebrate it. We'll be back. Man, it's been Christmas time at the Woodhouse for since September. We've been playing the, the old tunes, the Christmas tunes. Look, as we as we finish up today, there's a lot of good happening in, in our society. I know sometimes it, it feels like there's just tons of negative and, and tons tons of, of issues happening. There are certainly those. We live in a post Genesis three world. There's chaos, there's there's sin, there's there's struggles. But man, is there a lot of good. And so when we think through the direction the Lord may have us go, what today, today what I wanted to do was get us to a place of understanding that, that there is a, a segment of folks that are seeking to dehumanize our neighbors, dehumanize those in the womb, dehumanize those that are facing terminal illness, dehumanize those that are facing mental health issues and struggles. There's a segment of our population that would say, marriage may be good for you, it's not good for me. Or you don't understand what I grew up in, and, and the last thing I want to do is bring a baby into this situation. Look, times are tough. Things are hard. I, I get that. But it's the same thing I tell our dads at dad's class. There is nothing greater. Nothing. And, and, and I'm not saying this as a, hey, I'm supposed to say this because I, I lead a nonprofit that works with, with pregnant moms. No, I'm saying this because it's true in my life. There, there's nothing greater than looking at my children and watching them grow to become men and women. A chance at... at Raising them, a chance at, at my last name continuing on. A legacy to, to leave. And so when we look around us and we see folks seeking to dehumanize and we see folks seeking to say, hey, marriage is terrible. You don't want to do that. Put it off as long as possible. Having kids is tough. You don't want to do that. Put that off as long as possible. No, we need to buck that system. We need to highlight the joys of marriage. We need to highlight the joys of parenthood. You know, I was driving home this past Sunday with, and I had my son in the, in the vehicle with me, and we're pulling the trailer home, and, and we just sit. We just sat. We, we, we talked some. Sometimes we just sat in silence, listening to the radio, listening to the ball basketball game. Just sitting there with my dude. That's what it felt like. And I thought, man, how cool is this? 
After he saw me back the trailer down the driveway, he was like, Daddy, they should have a show. Because we, we watch a show called Truck Night in America. It's great. It's, it's amazing. They just go through mud and stuff. He was like, Daddy, they should have a van night in America, and you would be the best one. They should have one of the, one of the contests should be backing a trailer with your van, and you would win that. That's my son saying that to me, which I don't know if that would be great uh, TV, you know, <laughs> church van night in America. I don't know who would buy that. Uh, but the fact that my, my boy said that to me was a, was a big deal. So these are things that we have to look at. But that doesn't mean that, that me and Gavin are always on good terms. There's certainly moments where we're button heads, where we're disagreeing, where he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, or I lost my temper because I had a rough day, or, or whatever it is. Or his room's a wreck. But there's nothing like hearing, hey, Daddy, will you scratch my back? Can I get a hug? And so we need to be at a place where we're celebrating parenthood, where we're celebrating marriage. Because the the lie that has been told is, you don't need anyone. Go be you. Go climb that career ladder. Go do all that. You can put all this other stuff on the back burner. Yeah, you can. You can. But ultimately, that's not how you sustain a society. It just isn't. And so if I could encourage you over the next few weeks as you're having family get-togethers and work parties and those type things, take a moment to celebrate your spouse. You don't have to do it on social media because sometimes on social media it does seem as if it's forced. I'm just saying when you're, when you're with your girls, when you're with your boys... Do you find yourself attacking your spouse or celebrating them? Do you find yourself attacking your children or celebrating them? Let's celebrate them. We'll talk to you next week.